Well, if you have a Bible, we're in the middle of 2 Samuel. So if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8, we'll be picking up where we left off there before Palm Sunday. Chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel, for the ministry of David, for the prophets, Lord, who recorded um, your glorious deliverance of not only David but Israel, your faithfulness, your, your love and compassion and grace, Lord, that is, um, uh, has a long and storied past. We thank you that you are who you are, that you are, in fact, the God that you are, and for revealing yourself to us. And I pray that each of us this morning, as you reveal yourself even more to us, that we would love you and worship you and become like you. We thank you in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 8 of 2 Samuel is actually just an extension of chapter 7. Chapter 8, verse 1 begins with, after this. They're they're trying to connect what comes now in chapter 8 with what had happened in chapter 7. And chapter 7, if you recall, was the eschatological shaping exchange between Yahweh and David. They made promises to one another. David wanted to build the house of the Lord, and the Lord came to him and said, No, before you build my house, I will build yours, and I will make your name great. And David followed up that revelation with a prayer in which nine times he called himself the servant of the Lord. The Lord God told him, he said, I will appoint a place for my people. I will give you rest from your enemies. And and David's response to this was, I am your servant, I am your servant, I am your servant. Now, all the things that they began, or that they had promised to one another, began to happen right away. It's it's often the case where God makes promises to us, and we talk about the fact that they uh, take a long time (laughs) to happen. Much like Moses and Abraham, many of us are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's true that some of the promises of God work that way. But it's not always how it works. When God says, I will bless you, we can hardly get out the door here before we actually see that he is, in fact, blessing us. Not all of his promises are far off. In fact, what you typically have are some of the promises are fulfilled even in part right away. And the reason is because God does not want us to lose hope. Hope is the thing that most people need in order to keep going through the daily grind. So what we see in chapter 8 is that God immediately begins to show that he is, in fact, building David's house. He is, in fact, David's God. He is, in fact, going to make his name great, that he is, in fact, going to give them rest, that he is going to give them peace. And in, in like manner, David automatically begins to demonstrate that he is the servant of the Lord. Now, God gives David a great many victories. He gives him a great deal of wealth. He blesses him and blesses him and blesses him. He's very open-handed. He's very generous. And David receives many things in this chapter. And the question that I want to ask is, what does he do with them? How does he spend them? When God pours the grace out on him, how does he spend the grace? When God pours victories and fame upon him, how does he use the fame? When God pours uh, gold and bronze and precious metals out on him, how, how does he spend these things? Why is David called a man whose heart is after God? 
we, we've, we've looked already at one idea. is the fact that nobody repents like David, right? As soon as, as soon as you write a repentance like Psalm 51, I will give you the label. I'll make you a T-shirt that says a man after God's own heart. Another, you know, but there are other ways in which we understand this famous phrase about David. And what we're going to see is one of them is in chapter 8. He is clearly the servant of the Lord. His heart is in heaven. His treasure is in heaven. Everything he values, everything he loves, it is the Lord Jesus. Okay? Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who sits in the heavens and pours out upon him lavishly, he in return pours out lavishly back. Worship and praise. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what true servanthood is. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and we will go, uh, we'll begin at verse 1, and we will read through verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured with them a line, making them lie down on the ground, two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Adadazar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezar and brought them to Jerusalem and from Batah and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezar. King David took very much bronze. He took a lot of bronze. Now, I don't know. We'll have to check with Jared. Is bronze uh, precious metal, Jared? No, no, no. But it wasn't their day. And, and what he does with the bronze is probably one of the most important things in this whole chapter. And this is why I love the word of God. Who, right? who cares about bronze? Seems like a worthless thing. And then who cares that David got a bunch of it? But that's the beauty of scripture and that's the beauty of this chapter. It, you can see God is just pouring out blessing after blessing after blessing. You want to mess with David? You mess with David and you mess with Yahweh. <laughs> right? You got stuff? Well, your stuff is going to become David's stuff real soon. Now, what's fascinating is the territorial holdings of Israel double under David. He doubles the amount of territory that they own. The chapter is organized actually geographically in a way that reinforces the point. David's conquests begin with the Philistines to the west in verse 1, and then Moab to the east in verse 2. After that, David turns north to fight against Adadazar of Zobah, verses 3 through 12, the longest section, and his conflict ends with battles against the Edomites in the south, verse 14. So he goes north and east and south and west and whoops everybody and pushes everybody back and expands the territory of Israel. And he makes God's people what? What does he bring them? Rest from their enemies. He, you already see that the promises that he and God have made to one another in chapter 7 are already being fulfilled. Now this 
geographical victory in every direction is very important, and it points to us both backwards and forwards. And that's what I love also about Scripture. It's always telling us what what God said he would do (laughs) and showing us what he's going to do. Now, David extends the kingdom to the four points of the compass, symbolizing the extension of David's household kingdom to the four corners of the earth, as it says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is what he says in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, when he's talking about the anointed of the Lord, the king of the Lord's people, the one chosen, the one placed on a throne, he says, ask me, and I will give you, I will give you the nations. And what is God doing to David? Now, who comes along later and has this fulfilled in, 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 in even, more, uh, even more depth? We read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of the Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this is how the promises of God work. You see it immediately in the life of David. He's pushing everyone back in every direction to the four corners of the globe. And then we see millennia later, during the reign of Christ, that this is exactly what is happening to Christ. Where do they not know about Jesus Christ? Even now in this world, find me, right, that one tribe (laughs) somewhere on an island in the Pacific who's never heard of Jesus Christ. The nations of the world, the kingdoms of the world, have become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's seen in the life of David. Could you imagine sitting there after years and years and years of the Philistines handing the Israelites their lunch? Remember, just a generation ago, they couldn't even own weapons. They had to fight with farm tools. And now David is kicking the crap out of them in the north and south and east and west. You can say crap when you use it like that. He's kicking the crap out of them. It's old school beatdown. And everywhere he goes, he, he wins. Now, chapter 8, verse 1 through 14, foreshadows the true extent of David's greater descendant's throne. He's showing us right, that the kingdom of my greater descendant is going to spread out in every direction and cover the globe. Yahweh is also fulfilling his own word from 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 10. If you go back, and what did the Lord say he was going to do? He says, And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And what has he done? He, he has used his servant David right, as a plow, <laughs> and he has made a fertile ground for, to plant his people. And so the blessed man truly is like a tree planted by streams of living water. That, that is what God did to Adam. He, he made Adam and lifted him up and planted him in the garden. And now what he has done through David is he has taken Israel and he has planted Israel in a garden. Now crucial to this passage is the great exodus and the promises that Yahweh made to the patriarch Abraham. First, we read in Genesis chapter 10, Verses 13 through 14, I won't read it, but in the conclusion is, Egypt fathered Koslahim, from whom the Philistines came. So the Philistines are the children of Egypt. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 10. This is an important detail. 
The boundaries of David's mini empire coincide also with the boundaries that the Lord promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river to, uh, of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And it's, it's not a coincidence that Hadadezer's rule extends to the Euphrates in verse 3. David is fulfilling the conquest of the promised land after de- defeating the Egyptians. He's finishing the Lord's work. David, the son of God, has defeated the sons of Egypt. He has reconquered the land, not in miniature, but in, in its fullness. He has laid claim to his people's inheritance, not partially, but entirely. David gives Israel rest and protection and peace, fulfilling promises to the patriarchs and the work that the Lord had begun in, in the Exodus. <laughs> Usually we just get to this kind of chapter and we're just like, get to the part about Bathsheba already, right? This is like flyover country here. And, and what is going on after all of these promises and all this exchange of love in chapter 7 is we see that God is fulfilling his word to David, not only to David, but to the patriarchs. He's using David to finish the work. Because I, don't you think the Israelites would have been like, hey, I thought we were going to conquer the whole land. What happened? Well, here he is, generations later, finishing what he started, using David as the instrument. David is fulfilling God's word to his people, just as Jesus will do. He's embodying the hopes and history of Israel in himself, just as Jesus will. This is a spiritual, though, war and a spiritual reality as well as a physical reality. The longest section of this chapter has to do with David's victory over Hadadezer of Zobah. Don't worry, you don't have to say that. There's not going to be a test at the end. Hadadezer means Hadad is a help. That's a name. Hadad is a help. Well, who's Hadad? Well, Hadad is another name for that pesky little god named Baal. So Baal is a help. (laughs) That's the name of the king. And here comes David. And if my name was Baal is my help, and here comes David, I would be terrified. Right? That's assuming I would even understand what my name means. But if you're reading scripture and you get a little footnote like that, you're like, oh, man, what's going to happen to this guy, I wonder? Hadad, Baal, is his help. Hadadezer was relying on Baal for help. But Hadadezer was forced to turn to the Syrians of Damascus. Baal availed him of nothing. So he turns to a bunch of Syrians, and he sends them to fight David, and they all lose. Neither Baal nor the Syrians provided any protection. Yahweh, on the other hand, defeats the tyrannical Philistines and their gods, just like he had done to Egypt and their gods. Because what was the Exodus all about? Right? All the curses of Exodus is, is the Lord God knocking down one God after another, after another, after another, to deliver his people from slavery. Well, the Philistines have been subject, uh, subjugating the, the Israelites for generations. And they're, and they're putting all their faith in Baal. And the Lord God comes with David and strikes down not only um, the Philistines, but their gods as well. Your God is no help to you, is what they are saying. Hadadezer's kingdom, Zoba, was a region to the north of Israel populated by Syrians. There were Syrians of Damascus as well as Syrians in Zoba. Extending from Zoba to Damascus, it's a huge kingdom. And for his own security, David goes on the offensive. And here is a biblical argument for offensive wars, which we're not going to get into at the moment because that's a little, maybe a little controversial. But I just want you to know that David goes on the offensive. And so nations that go on the offense in order to protect themselves 
it can actually be justified. Just war theory is one of those, this history, or the circumstances in life right now are just giving us wonderful opportunities to learn ancient biblical truths. Just war theory is something that we all should familiarize ourselves with since World War III has begun. (laughs) Why should a nation go to war? How should a nation go to war? David is on the offense. And what he does is he already knows that Hadadezar has a front already with another king. And so what he does is he creates a second front because usually people cannot fight on two fronts uh, ask the Germans how that goes, fighting two fronts in the, east, in the east and the west. It didn't work in World War I, it didn't work in World War II, and it certainly didn't work under the Prussians. David is an excellent tactician. He creates a second front, thereby defeating Hadadezar and delivering the king, someone named King Toy, which is a great name, King Toy. <laughs> and King Toy is quite thrilled. King Toy is like, man... David is my guy. I'm going to send my son now with treasure, and I'm going to go and find out. I'm going to ask about David's health, and I'm going to see how David is doing because he has delivered me from this evil king. Now, it, there, there are some interesting details that we should mention. David captures a huge number of horses and chariots, and he hamstrings most of them. And he's obeying, actually, Deuteronomy 17, because Deuteronomy 17 is a law for kings that says, don't multiply unreasonably the number of tanks that you have. And so David has the opportunity to have more tanks than anybody. That's what a chariot was in those days. And he refuses to do it because he's not going to put his faith in chariots. He doesn't collect all these horses and chariots and say, and all these weapons be like, oh, now we're somebody's. No, he's like, I don't need these. I will defeat God's enemies wherever God's enemies are, and I don't need horses to do it. He keeps a hundred of them, which is ceremonial for, for ceremonial purposes. So what you see is already David is not a graspy king. He's not collecting military equipment beyond what he already has because he doesn't need it. Now the Syrians become servants in a tributary state to Israel as Yahweh showed himself superior to Baal. This battle shows not only the superiority of David, but why David is superior over the Syrians, because of Yahweh. It shows why. Why is David better? Why is David having victory? Why is David smarter, outsmarting all of his enemies and defeating all of his enemies? It's quite clear from the text, it's not David. And so all of this victory flowing to him, what, it's quite possible that he's going to get what? A little, a little prideful, a little arrogant. It's, it's a real temptation. But what actually happens, right? Here comes Toy now, King Toy, sending a delegation to David to to tell him how great he is and to offer him gifts because he's a savior, it says. He saves King Toy and his people from Hadadezar. And and so now he's the great liberator. But this is what it says of our friend David, beginning in verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezar, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he has fought against Hadadezar and defeated him. For Hadadezar had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, of bronze. These things, uh, these also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from the nations he subdued, from Edom and Moab and the Ammonites and the Philistines and Hamalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Toy's son 
His name is Joram. But what's interesting is in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 10, the son's name is actually Adoram, which means Hadad is exalted. Now, who's the dad again? Oh, that's Baal. So this young man was born and given the name Baal is awesome. <laughs> Baal is the man. But his name was changed to Joram, which means Yahweh is exalted. Yahweh is awesome. And so you see, not only is David saving people, liberating people from foreign kings, they are actually changing their names. They're changing their names to becoming Yahweh worshipers. Toy and his kingdom are, not, are apparently not only politically saved but David, by David, but saved to become Gentile worshipers of Yahweh. This is not just a physical battle. When we read about these things, we, we don't know these details. And we think, oh, well, you know, that's that Old Testament God who's just angry and wants to go out and crush his enemies. But there's spiritual realities here. The Lord God wants the Gentiles to come into the, his kingdom. He wants them to be his worshipers. And what you see is that he's actually accomplishing that fact. The expansion of Yahweh's kingdom is a blessing to the Gentiles. David is not just expanding the physical kingdom of Yahweh, but he is also expanding the spiritual kingdom as well. Now, the spoil from these wars is also impressive. There are shields of gold, which belong to the Syrian officers, provided the nucleus of a collection, which was to be greatly expanded by his son Solomon. He takes these gold shields into Jerusalem, and in 1 Kings 10.17, Solomon adds a bunch of shields to it. These weapons are ceremonial rather than military, since no one would go out into a battle with a giant gold shield, I don't think. <laughs> Seems a little too heavy. But these shields have a very storied life. These, these shields become like a character all, uh, unto themselves. We read about them later. They remained in Israel until the exile, depleted by Shashak, king of Egypt, during Rehoboam's reign in 1 Kings 14. But they were also used in 2 Kings 11 when uh, one of the priests overthrew a false king. This is what it says in 2 Kings 11.10. And the priests gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. These gold shields are in Jerusalem a long time. And part of when um, uh, the priest is overthrowing the false king, the reason he gets these gold shields out is because he's reestablishing the line of David. So he gets this symbolic thing out of, the, out of the storehouse, and he gives it to the soldiers. Now, in David's time, such a collection of gold shields would be a source of pride and prestige. Now he's not just being followed by soldiers in, in ceremonial events. He's being followed by soldiers in gold tanks. <laughs> right? This is like the blue angels. Why are they blue and yellow? Why are they all bright? Right? Why, do we get, why do we have certain military equipment that just looks prettier than the other military equipment? Well, because it's flashy, and it looks cool, especially at the Super Bowl when all the planes start flying over. And, and, and it's supposed to be a little razzy-tazzy, right? Why, why is all the dictators, their missiles are always painted really bright colors when they're doing the little goose-stepping thing? Because it's supposed to impress people when you have this, like, fashionable, awesome-looking military equipment. And so here's David now, the, the shepherd, David the farm boy, David who had lived in exile all those years, is walking around being followed by a troop of soldiers carrying gold shields. It's quite impressive. Now, this would go to my head, right? If I had the deacons start carrying around gold shields everywhere I went, <laughs> I'm not really suggesting that. I bet, I bet Jerry could make some, though, the jeweler. But I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that. That would be impressive. That kind of thing would go to my head real fast. But it doesn't go to his head. It doesn't. And not, and not only that, it's not the only precious metal 
he collects. Bronze was taken from these towns and used in building the temple and to form the Bronze Sea, which sat on the back of 12 bulls in the temple complex. Now, the temple complex that Solomon is going to make is quite extensive, and there's a lot of symbolism in it. And and, and what they had was this giant Bronze Sea sitting on the back of these massive bulls, three on each side, right? So there are 12 total. It's the nation of Israel holding up this giant sea. Now, what is that all about? And here David is in in the in-between years where he was told not to build the, the temple of the Lord, collecting the very bronze from the nations that they're going to use to make the sea, which represents in the temple the nations. That's what the sea represents. Now, I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but it's an important one. Because this kind of deep symbolism in the Bible, is it sounds like the skinny branches, but it actually isn't. I'm firmly on the ground in this particular instance. The bronze sea is a metaphor for the nations because the actual seas are a metaphor for the nations. And they're sitting on the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel are holding up the nations of the world. Psalm 65, verse 7 and 8. I'm going to, let's talk about the fact that the sea, the physical sea, the sea in nature, is actually a symbol for the nations. In Psalm 65, verse 7 and 8, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell in the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Now the psalmist is using the roaring waves and the tumult of the people interchangeably. The nations in their fervor are like the foaming seas. Later, Isaiah talks about the Assyrians as an overflowing river that threatens Judah. The people of Judah must decide between two rivers in the book of Isaiah. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 8. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep On into Judah, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So the invading army of the Assyrians is like a river that's flooding the land. Psalm 46, verse 6, states that Yahweh is the river whose streams make glad the city of God. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. You either take the river that makes glad the cities of God, or you, t- or you keep rejecting me and disobeying me, and you get the Assyrian river that will flood you. In Isaiah's day, Judah rejected those waters, trusting the, the waters of the living God, trusting in Aram for protection from Assyria, just like King Hadadezar did, because they had forgotten the story of David. When, when you have two nations and two gods, and you pit them against right, Yahweh against whoever... Bring up any contender you like. Who wins? And just like the, this false king, this wicked evil king, goes and gets help from Assyrians, so does the people of Israel later. The, the, all of these things are tied together. Because they have rejected the Lord's living water, the Lord will let the Euphrates overflow and engulf them. And the Euphrates, in this case, is the Assyrian army. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Just hang on with me. Okay? We really are talking about the Bronze Sea in the temple. As judgment, when God judges this world, he reverses creation. This is what this is all about. Back on, in creation, what did he do? He separated the land from the waters. 
So then what does he do when he's angry? Well, he reverses creation, he undoes creation, and lets the water overflow the land, like the flood. And so this becomes a symbol. The nations are represented by the seas, and when, when God is judging his people, he uses the same decreation language. I'm going to flood you now with the nations. Just like I flooded this earth in the beginning when Noah was alive, and that's what it always represents. The sea is a hostile place. Waters are a hostile place. They are unpredictable. And in them are monsters, right? This is why the Leviathan, the dragon, the great serpent, just like Satan is, lives in the sea, and he's terrible and frightening. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, is represented as a sea monster in Jeremiah 51. But the Lord will not allow Babylon to overflow his people forever, as he promises in Jeremiah 51.36. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. The sea is a hostile place representing the unbelieving nations. This typology plays a huge role in the life of Christ. This is the point. What does he do? What is his interaction with seas? Now, when we did the Gospel of Mark, I kind of hovered around this idea a little bit, but it's deep waters, pun intended, and so I kind of stayed away from it. But what does Jesus do? He walks upon the sea. Why? Because he's going to tread down the nations. He's in a boat with his disciples, and they're all freaking out. And why? Because the sea is is going to cause them. And what does he do? He stands up and he tells the sea to be quiet. Because he is the one who will quiet the tumult of the peoples. He is the one who overcomes. This is also why he tells his people to become fishers of men. Go and get men out of the seas. Now, what this is all about, why would he have a giant sea in the temple then? Because what he wants are the nations upheld by Israel to be brought into his temple where he is worshipped. That's what he wants. And David gets to be the one to collect the bronze from the nations by overcoming them like Christ will, so that they can use the material to build the complex where the Lord God will be worshipped. Now, this, what I'm describing, sounds an awful lot like Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are Gentiles, you are the sea being upheld by what? The prophets and apostles, the 12 bulls. You are the seas that God has calmed, that he has tread upon, that he has brought into his household. That is what this is all about. And so you go back, and here David is collecting something, and we think, oh, who cares about that? Well, we care because that's us that he's talking about. He's, he's going out and defeating the nations and bringing the material in in order to build the temple of the Lord. Just like the Lord tread us down and brought us in, and he's now using us to build the temple of the Lord. And Paul is referring to the sea and the twelve bulls. That's what he's referring to here. Bronze is flowing into Israel from the nations, and David is storing it up to build the sea of the temple, upheld by the bulls of Israel. Just as the nations themselves will flow, not over Israel, but into Israel, for the waves of Christ's blood will wash them clean. 
We see in these metaphors, just as the expansion of Yahweh's kingdom through David was a blessing for the nations, so too is the tribute given to David, for it is used to build the sea of the temple. All through all of this, all this fame, all this glory, all these chariots, all these horses, all these victories, and what is David concerned about? Well, they're going to need to build something, right? They're going to need to build a giant sea representing the nations, and I better collect that stuff. That's what he's thinking about. That's what he's thinking about as he's going around receiving all this glory and all this goodness and all this grace. He's thinking about what are they going to use to build the Lord's house? What are they going to use to declare his glory? This is what true servanthood looks like. This is what someone whose heart is after God, he, he gets his treasure, in the, his, is in the right place. This is what it looks like to pursue the Lord and, and to treasure him above everything else. Fame for me, fame for me. No, the Lord needs bronze. Bronze? I mean, it looks like gold. If you polish it really nice. David is not distracted by the, the goodness that is coming to him. His focus is still on the Lord. But his conquests are not yet over. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we finish with these verses, 13 through 15. It says, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the, in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. The large number of Edomites put to death implies an attempt to invade Israel from the south and so preserve their monopoly on trade routes. Most, again, this is a detail. The Edomites were great travelers of the seas. They went many places. Forget all that nonsense about how nobody floated on a boat around the world until the 16th century. That's nonsense. Okay? The Edomites were great sailors of the seas. And they brought back many things. And David has cut off their trade routes. And what you see is there's nothing new under the sun. This is the, right, this is the kind of thing that still happens. Oh, our trade, we're going to lose oil, access to oil. We better go to war now so that we can preserve, what, our goods. And so Edom raises an army and goes to fight David in order to hang on to a place called Ezion Geber. The number suggests a large invasion. And David puts them to the sword. And then he puts garrisons in their city. And he takes possession of this place. And his son is going to use that, that, that port city in order to build a great empire. This is what we read in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26 to 28. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. And Haram sent with his fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought... From there, gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. So David is building a kingdom that his son will use to build an empire. This is long-term vision. This is a man who gets like, you know what, I can't really put any, I'm very busy putting all these people under the sword. I can't really do much with this port city, but maybe my son will. And he does. So he's thinking not of himself. He's thinking of his children. He's thinking of the people of Israel. He's thinking about making the the household of God bigger and better and stronger and wealthier and blessing it. Now, I love the skinny branches. Ophir is is a place that nobody really knows where where it is. And it's because modern Christians somehow have a very difficult relationship with tradition. 
it's South America. I'm just going to cut right to the end. Okay? They go there and they get gold from the same place the Spanish and the Portuguese later go and get gold. And, and nobody can quite figure out where this lost land is. And why is it then if you go to South America, there's Hebrew and Phoenician, Syrio-Phoenician writing in the mountains. Anyway, I'm getting away from myself. But David doesn't do it in his own day. He provides for his children to do it. Now, one of the key words of chapter 8 is smite. David is smiting everybody left and right. He smites the Philistines, the Moabites, Hedadezar, Edomites. Moabites were forced to pay him tribute. David took the gold shields. He brought in bronze. When Toy of Hamath heard about David's defeat of Hadadezar, he sent tribute because David has delivered Toy from Hadadezar. First David smote and then he plundered like a pirate. And the plunder became holy, consecrated to Yahweh. Now this is a vision for the Christian life, if I've ever heard it. What ought our churches be doing? Well, how about we smite and plunder? You're like, whoa, that sounds very Old Testament to me. Oh, really? Yeah. So just like the Lord Jesus smote the nations and brought the people in to build himself a house, that's like clearly different from David, right? Don't answer that. Smiting and plundering. Hmm. Interesting. Right? Why, why are we digging trenches and hiding in them? We're surrounded on every side, right? North, south, east, and west. I can find you a commie progressive in any direction at this particular moment. I can find you darkness and unbelief. And is David going out and just killing everyone? No, he's converting people and delivering people from darkness. He's delivering people from, from um, wicked and evil kings. And he's bringing all of this plunder in. And what is he doing with it? Making himself rich? Is he taking port cities because now he is going to become a bazillionaire? No, he is building for others. He's building for the people of God. He's building for his children. He's building for the Lord. And he dedicates everything that he's doing to the Lord. He smites and he plunders, and he brings the plunder to the feet of his king. Everybody else is coming to him, laying down before him, laying their riches down at his feet. And what does that person do? He goes with all of this glory and all of this fame and all of this wealth, and he lays it down at the feet of his master, his lord. David has remembered Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 and 9. I wonder where Solomon learned this. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Let me be neither rich nor poor. Let me be content. Oh, and I have an abundance now? You gave me I, I, a bunch has come into my hands that I don't need? Well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that glory and goodness and grace for the sake of others. David is showing us the purpose of humanity, and that is servanthood to Yahweh, just like his greater descendant would do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, I can go in my office, and I will get history books, and I will bring them out here. And we will go one by one through ancient emperors who conquer lands and conquer lots of gold and lots of bronze and lots of silver, and then what they end up doing is calling themselves gods. 
This is what all the ancient Near Eastern, this, is, this was very in vogue, and they're still doing it today. And David has all of this glory and all of this goodness, and he does not make himself a god. He honors God. God, God. Equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. And he humbles himself, and he devotes everything that he has to the Lord. And, and where, your, what? where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so this isn't just a man who repents when he violates the law of God. He is a man who is, who is building and collecting and thriving and having victory and, and to, to lay it at the Lord's feet. His treasure is God, and that is where his heart is. And he's not, at, the, at this point, <laughs> distracted by all the shiny things by all the fame, by all the glory, by all the goodness. This is what true servanthood looks like. Are you building for yourself or are you building for the people of God? Are you building for your spouse or, or for yourself? Are you building for your children or for yourself? What are you building and who is it for? Again, history <laughs> helps us here. I'm sitting here in this room. I'm standing before you, a member of this community, the richest people who have probably ever lived. Right? I, I'll say, uh, right? I, I, can, I can go to the grocery store and I can buy whatever meat I want, 50 flavors of yogurt, and bring it home and it doesn't go bad. Why? Because I have this machine that I stick it in. I can go down the road and tell me what emperor in the ancient world would say, I would like to hear Beethoven's ninth now. No, not that one, Beethoven's fifth. No, not that one, I'm sorry, Mozart's third. Right? Who rides around with a symphony in the back of their car? But no, me, I'm just like, oh, I'm bored with this station, bored with this. Ugh, man. If I was just a king or a god or something, I could just get everything I wanted. I guess I'll listen to 70s rock. Boop. What are we, right? Now, now let's talk about victories. We're, we're the children of the West. Who's defeated us? What are we doing with all this glory? What are we doing with all this fame? What are we doing with all these riches? Who are we building for? Because we're more like David than Solomon. We're here in dark, in dark land. We're here on the edge of the world. We're here where 150 years ago there was nothing, and the people worshipped no gods. And here we are standing to do what? Put a hammock up? Right? Drink some coors? Are we here to build? Are we here to give glory to the living God? Are we here to obey him? David is an example at this point because he is an example of the humility and servanthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, we ought to imitate him. In that, we ought to do what he does, just the way he does it. We ought to fight, and we ought to win, and then we ought to plunder. And then what we ought to do is, is use all of that to bless everyone around us. That is where this church is going. That is what we should be all about. And if I have anything to say about it, we will. Now go. Fight, win, glorify God. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. We thank you, Lord, for, for the, your love of the nations, Lord. Your love for people who did not know you, who did not want to know you. Lord, you not only defeated us, 
but you have brought us into your temple and made us a part of your household. We thank you and we praise you, and I pray that all of us here would go into the world this week and that we would fight and that in Christ we would win, and in Christ, Lord, we would glorify you with all that we say and do and steward all things that you have put into our hands for the good of of your kingdom and for the good of others. And amen.